Welcome to Masterminds in Medicine. This is Juliette Hahn. I'm here to explore the personal side of the medical innovators, the individuals who dedicate their lives into advancing and healing us as patients. I am excited to be able to bring you the human side of these stories to connect on a deeper level. Welcome to Masterminds in Medicine. Welcome to Masterminds in Medicine. I am Juliette Hahn, and this is brought to you by Your Next Stop. And right now, we have a guest that I can't even tell you how excited on because I met Dr. Jennifer Moffitt. Welcome to Masterminds in Medicine. Thank you for having me, Juliette. Yes. So Dr. Moffitt is a professor at the State University in New York. And I met Dr. Moffitt through a study that we were doing with FetTech and, um, and EnviroMed through the NIH on shingles. And so that was my first kind of interaction with Dr. Moffitt. And from there, I said, I want to know a little bit more about what makes Dr. Moffitt tick. Like, how did she get into this? Because you guys know, you know, your next stop listeners, that I become really curious and I love people's personal stories. So I reached out to Dr. Moffitt and I said, can, can we talk? I, I really want to have you on this podcast. I obviously want to talk, you know, touch base what you're doing because you were the principal investigator on this. And at the state university, you're an associate, associate professor of microbiology and immunology, which I really don't know anything about, and I became even more fascinated asking you questions. So, you know, welcome to Masterminds in Medicine, and thank you so much for taking the time to share, you know, who you are. Well, it, it's my pleasure, Juliet, and I'm actually eager to share the the journey that brought me to this point and some of the more recent work we've done with Fet Tech. It's uh, pretty exciting stuff. It is, and and I, it was funny because, again, I was. This is new world for me, and being in the uh, in the meeting when you kind of were taking us through what your findings were. I remember sitting on the side and kind of like squealing, but watching everyone else's body language and 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 the way you guys were kind of talking in the science world and thinking these are really exciting things, but everyone's so kind of not flat, but really just like, okay, this is, this is the science behind it. And then again, when we met and we started diving into your story and then hearing some of your passion and then watching you just kind of light up, I was like, this is going to be exciting. This is going to be exciting for the listeners because it's bringing them a different story. This is bringing them a different side. And that's, I really want to bring the kind of personal stories to science. Now that I'm in this role at FedTech as the chief communications officer, this is like kind of what 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 lights me up the stories about people and and really stories connect us when you hear someone's story you kind of ask some questions to yourself but also hey i feel a little bit more connected so i would love to start with kind of your background like where you grew up and a little bit about you know your upbringing all right um well i actually grew up in san diego california um, I was one of the few native Californians in my classroom growing up, but my father and his father um, were all from San Diego. So, you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors, uh, exploring, going on backpacking trips, skiing trips, and just learned to really love the natural world. So when I went off to college, I uh, was a biology major. And I went about as far north as you can go in California. I went to University of California at Davis. And I just fell in love with it instantly. Um, I absolutely loved everything about being in college, uh, studying biology. And um, my world really changed when I took a microbiology course. 
And I, I was astonished that there's this unseen world underneath, really, inside of us, on every surface. We're covered in microbes, uh, bacteria, viruses, fungus. And I didn't know about that. And I was riveted. Um, I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to pause yeah. you because so, you know, and again, my listeners are going to probably be laughing because they're going to be like, she's going to ask. So what drew you to science? Like what drew you into that yeah. in school? Yeah. Well, you know, I have this vivid memory, um, as a young, very young child, um, hiding out in my grandparents' house where I could steal the encyclopedias and open them up and just look at everything in the encyclopedia. I was riveted by the human anatomy part. Um, you know, just any picture of science. I think what it was is I wanted to know how things worked, like fundamentally, how does stuff work? How does it all fit together? And luckily, I was encouraged, you know, to um, to just be curious as a kid and ask a lot of questions, you know. Well, uh, and, and one of the things about, you know, that I love so much, and I think this is why we connected is I was that same sort of kid. I was so fascinated. I had all those anatomy and physiology kind of books. Like my parents would be like, oh my gosh, what is she going to be a doctor? What is this? And I think I shared with you, I'm dyslexic. So school was really difficult for me. So I really kind of excelled more in the communications and the, and I don't want to say English because, you know, dyslexia, that is, that's where also I struggled, but I was able to connect more and, and put that down on paper. So the sciences were really tough for me, but I was always really curious because that's how my brain worked and even how like the world worked. You know, I was the kid that was like, well, why does that happen? And, and how does that happen? So I, that's when, you know, when we were talking, I really connected with you on that because it is a fascinating world to kind of understand and how brains comprehend it and then go. So you were that kid. Now, did you have yeah. siblings um, when yeah. you were growing up? I did. I actually have a younger brother and, you know, he is a truly gifted musician. And so for him, every tune he ever heard, he could just absorb it, repeat it, sing it, play it. And I felt that I had that ability to absorb the details of the world around me. And I, I, it just sunk in so easily. So he could, he could hear music and tunes. I could just learn facts and see the world in a very up close, detailed way. That's um, cool. And so yeah. what, did, what did your parents do as a, in, in a living? Like what, what does, oh. what was their profession? So my dad is a, was an electronics engineer. And mm -hmm. he's also a naturalist in that he loves to study the geography, the geology, the history, the astronomy. Just he's a he loves to know about the world and he passed that on to us. We could ask him any question. He also would play us songs on his guitar. So, you know, it was real hippies. My parents were very young. Um, and my mom was a, like a real estate agent and she, um, worked with redevelopment really of some of the older neighborhoods in San Diego. Um, but my grandparents were really involved with us and they took us places, traveling Europe, Alaska, Grand Canyon, and, and really broadened our world and gave us piano lessons and that kind of thing. So I had a lot of family around me that I just felt were my, you know, supported us in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. And, you know, when people think about California and San Diego, you think about the outdoors, right? And then you, you went up to upstate California. And again, that's like, you know, you think, I think of Tahoe and oh, those, and it's, and it's super outdoorsy. So when you went into college and you started studying the microbiology, take us kind of through that. Was that like a light bulb moment that you were like, this is what I want to do? 
Yes, it really absolutely was. Um, I was taking biology. I had to take some electives. I took microbiology and I found myself sitting closer and closer to the front row. Like by the second week, I'm like front row, right? And I'm writing down every word this professor said. And he actually paused and he says, I lost my train of thought. And he comes up to my notebook, spins it around, looks at my notes and goes, oh, okay, now I know where I am, right? <laughs> so I was like recording every every possible, yeah. And I met with him in his office and he just asked me like, hey, do you want to work on this? You know, you're really, you're really enthusiastic. So he shared his passion with me, Dr. Dr. Ingram. Um, and I just really got to know more about the whole microbiology field. It was a terrific department at UC Davis. And I took more and more courses and loved every bit of it. Um, worked in a lab, um, got out a research publication before I even graduated. And I, I had to choose, you know, what my field would be. And I thought, oh, medical technology, right? I could be in a hospital lab and, and be doing diagnostic tests. That was my second choice. But I was, in fact, encouraged to go uh, to graduate school. You know, and you brought up a good point. And I think it's always wonderful to have that teacher or that parent or that person that sees you and and encourages you. Because when you have even, you know, some of us just need one person that's behind us that gives us that, like, you can do this. And um, I have, you know, very vivid memories. Again, struggling in school, I didn't have a lot of like, okay, I, I love this place. I love, you know, the, the feedback that I'm getting from some of these teachers or whatever. But there was always one every couple of years that would see me and would build me up. And I also had a very supportive family, you know, friends and stuff like that. So I think it's a really important thing that it, anyone listening that works with children or even teenagers, if you see something, be the person that kind of, Hey, I see you. I see what you're doing. And I think it's great. And cause you never know. And we talked about, and we're going to get into it, but a, a passion, right? When you have a passion for something, the sky's the limit when you have that direction and you have that support. So you really, you, you found like really quickly what you were loving. And then you had that kind of that professor say, I see you. I love what you're doing. I can see you in this. So then take us through, you know, as you went to graduate school and where did that go? Well, I just want to comment on your, what you said. And that is, it hit me like a lightning strike, you know, this deep interest in, in studying microbes. Um, it has never gone away, right? And so having that drive from that internal drive has really been an advantage to me because it, it clears away other choices, right? I don't have to figure out, well, this way or that way, what do I do? Because I knew exactly what I was drawn toward. And that, I, not everyone finds it. And, um, and some people get to try a lot of things, but I, found it early. And it has been one of the most, um, the biggest advantages I think I've had. So I'm grateful. And some of your success, because as you said, because you were able to find that, I mean, you graduated, I know we're going to get into your PhD, but you went to Stanford and uh, again, finding it early. And one of the things that I always say, and I'll say to my kids, and we do talk about on the podcast, sometimes it's really important to find out what you don't like and that leads you to what you're, you're, you like or what you're meant to. You know, um, I believe in God, but the universe, I do believe we all have a path and there's a path, but not all of us find it because of sometimes we don't let that curiosity 
go blossom. And I, I, when, when you said that, I literally wanted to jump out and scream because this is what I preach all the time. If you remain curious and allow yourself to kind of daydream and try and check things and do things and ask those questions, you're going to find your purpose and your passion to me faster than someone else that's not letting themselves be open. So I love that you found that really early because again, you're doing some really, really important work for humankind and mankind. So we need people like you that are out there doing things like that. So what, what did graduate school look like? But well, th- yeah, thank you for sharing all that. Sure. But you know, finding meaning in life is something we all seek. And I had this idea that I wanted to study the, the microbes that make us sick, not just the ones that are out and about and aren't bothering us, but what about the ones that are hurting us that make us ill? So I focused um, my graduate studies on medical microbiology, right? pathogens and things, human diseases. So I applied to four different schools and um, it was hard to choose Stanford over say University of Washington, but I, I was I was very lucky uh, to get into a very small group of students and um, what a place, you know, <laughs> it, it was a lot for me to handle and um, just the uh, excitement. Right. The amount of research going on that my my professors had Nobel prizes. And and then the people sitting next to me in class were also just coming back from the Olympics and had gold medals. I kid you not. Debbie Thomas and Eric Hyden and like, whoa, I think I'm over my head. But I stuck it out and I didn't let the sort of the atmosphere of, you know, how important it was um, get to me. And I put my, you know, did my work and I, I studied Legionnaire's disease, actually. Um, and I was really interested in how a bacteria like Legionnaire's disease can get inside of a cell and live there, right? So it lives inside of those cells in your lungs and it causes terrible pneumonia. Um, and so how does it do that, right? So I was very interested in the interaction of, of a microbe with us, with our cells. And... Um, By the time I finished, it led to more questions about, well, maybe, you know, what are the best, who takes, who does this best? And that's viruses, right? Viruses get in, have to get inside of a cell. And um, so I was drawn toward virology in 1994 uh, and I switched my areas. I learned more things. So um, I feel like that's when I really found my people. Um, you know, every field has its uh, its kind of tribe. Well, when I found the virology tribe, I knew I was home. <laughs> That's when it all that. fit together. Yeah, I found my people. Um, I joined a terrific lab, again, at Stanford, um, because this time I, um, I was married, and my husband is an electrical engineer in Silicon Valley, so we didn't want to move right away. But Stanford had so many op- opportunities. It wasn't a real hardship, you know, to stay there. Right. So, no, and I yeah. th- and again, I think it's it's me now learning so much about the science world, which again, it just opens up a whole new curiosity for me. And and speaking with our head uh, scientist Vicky, and learning about 
different labs and different things and where, you know, there's scientists that have that brain that they just want to do one thing and dig really deep. I think it's called the investigator brain. I did some stuff that they've done in, in at NASA with brains where I'm like the direction changing brain. So I can do like a thousand different things really quickly. And it doesn't, it, I don't, it doesn't bother me. Right. If I had to stay one focus down to certain thing, I would, it would lose me. So you definitely have that brain and that kind of science um, mind where it's like, I just want to get to the, to, to study everything I can to kind of get to the cause of it and then have a solution. I mean, is that what I'm hearing? It's like, how can we have a solution to help? And do you, again, it, it's one of these kind of questions that I ask and it, there, I don't think there's a, a right answer or a wrong answer, but because of the way you grew up and you were allowed to flourish that, do you feel like that that just kept feeding into it? And if you had, you know, kind of that world where people shut you down and, and stopped, you know, no, stop asking questions, stop asking questions, that that would have gone dead a little bit inside. But because you had this, like, keep asking questions and, you know, you kept getting to that next step of where you were going, right? With, with like, okay, my curiosity is here. I'm going to study this. I'm going to study that because you had confidence in what you were doing. I mean, it really comes down to the confidence and the support that you probably had early on. But so just as a fun thing, do you think if it was like smushed down, do you think that it could have been different or do you think it's something that's really just innate? Well, I think most humans are innately curious, but I think scientists are comfortable with the unknown, right? Um, so going to graduate school is where you're trained how to do experiments and how to know when you what's what we know and what we don't know and you're when and scientists are right at that um leading edge of knowledge and so i don't know if it what moment it was as a youngster that it it occurred to me that you know, I wanted to go into this unknown, but I do remember being interviewed for a scholarship. I was applying for a scholarship in college because I had no money. I could barely afford college. I needed the scholarship, right? And so I was interviewed and they said, why do you want to study science and why do you want to, you know, go on to grad school? I said, I just want to know everything about something. And I think that's that deep dive, right? I wanted to get to the edge of knowledge and then go another step forward. I wanted to just be adding knowledge. And and it, I think it resonated with them because I got the scholarship, which was really helpful. But ever since then, I've tried to explain the difference between knowing a lot of stuff and being a scientist, which is knowing stuff, but being excited about what we don't know. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I love how you just answered that. And cause it is, there's a lot of people that are not okay with the unknown. I mean, it's funny. I actually don't mind the unknown. And, and even though I'm not in, you know, in the science world, I'm, I don't mind the unknown. I get excited about the unknown because I'm like, well, what's next? But there's so many people that you meet and we can all think about, right? The, the person that was like, Oh, I don't like the unknown. I like to know. I like to have control over it. I like to, to, you know, be like, okay, what's next? I don't like to kind of jump off. So. Being a scientist, I mean, that's a huge quality. And I'm sure there's scientists that, you know, don't have that quality and they're not going to be as successful and creative because it is, that is like the creative part of it. So now you're, you know, you're studying, you realize, okay, virolo you know, virologist, this is what I want to do. So take us through a little bit of that part of your life. I was so lucky. I joined a lab with a, a woman, um, uh, leading the group and she's just was fantastic. Her name was Ann Arvin and she um, 
was just a really wonderful person to work for. She gave me lots of guidance, but also lots of freedom. And together, we charted a new course, really, in science. So um, we were working together on the virus that caused um, chickenpox and shingles. And uh, we wrote grants and had high-impact papers because we were really filling the, uh, a need for new knowledge right when it was necessary. This was in the early 90s when the chickenpox vaccine was um, almost approved. It was approved in 95. So uh, we were really trying to dig into what, how that vaccine works, how the virus works, how can we study it, and I just got there at the right time. And we got funding, we had opportunity, we worked with some Silicon Valley companies, we we just were surrounded by greatness, you know, there was pathologists and, oh my gosh, everybody was there and uh, things clicked, they really were wonderful and I, it, it was the best time of my scientific life. Um, I love that. It was really wonderful. Yeah. And you can hear it. You can feel, you can feel yeah. like your smile. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just in, in, infectious. And that is, we talk about in, in life with really friends and anyone about you need to love what you do, but also being surrounded by people that also love what they do and have that same kind of passion and fire. It just makes it so much better. You know, I mean, it makes it go in like, you know, where you can remember jobs. I know I've been on jobs where I loved what I did, but maybe there were some teammates that weren't very happy and they were really negative. And it's, it makes it makes the day not as, as wonderful. So you were also on the kind of the brink of this which again, it's like the unknown, but like, what can my research do? Where can I help? And I think, you know, again, talking to you before, there's a, there's a, a service heart in you as well. I mean, and I think that comes with, with your field. It's not just, you want to get to like what it is, but it's also because you want to help and, and, and help people. Yeah. I, I was in the division of pediatric infectious diseases and I, I'm not a physician myself, but I'll tell you, there's no one kinder in the world, kind hearted than a pediatric infectious disease doc. Okay. These are the saints of medicine. They like kids. They, they want to care for sick kids. It's just, you know, these are the people who have um, a real generous, uh, heart. And I loved working with them. I tell you, I really found my tribe. I, 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 it was really remarkable how well I fit with this group. And how, um, so if you can take, cause I love timelines. So kind of what was your age and yeah, yeah. it was a, it was a exciting time. I started in this lab when I was 28 Okay, and I'd been married a few years and I had actually two children during this phase. Wow. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> I was so tired. Um, I had two daughters um, when I was 30 and 32. Um, and I was very busy because, you know, kids, sick kids, they're always sick. It's like, oh, gee, again. Um, but I felt like it was important not to sacrifice a full life. I mean, science will take whatever you give it. And so will your family. They'll take whatever you give. But I had a lot of energy, right? So I thought, I can do this. And um, in fact, I could. It was doable, but but wore me down, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, we, and we did, you know, this is something, again, that is, comes up a lot in the podcast is about being a woman and being out in the career world and raising a family. And there was a time in the, I mean, it was really 90s, 2000s that it was like, women can do it all. 
And I remember I was going back to the workforce after my oldest, he was born in 2005. And I remember sitting there being like, I just always wanted to be a mom, but I feel obligated that I need to do it all because this is what, and I wasn't that type of person, but I think hormones and everything was like, okay, I should just crack on. Right. And I remember my sister said to me, well, what's going to make you the best wife and mom? And I said, well, staying home. And she goes, well, then what are you doing? And I literally lost it. I started crying. I was fortunate enough that I was able to stay home. But then this is what a lot of times people think, okay, you you stay home and you take yourself out of doing anything. And so those people that are listening that maybe are young, that are like, if I take myself out of it, it, it it's not over. And you need to ask yourself that question. What's going to make you the best wife and the mom at that moment? And if going back to work does it because I had many friends that they were like, if I stayed home, I would not be good. Like I needed to do something else for me. I needed to do that. But then look where I am now. I reinvented myself in a different way. And I shouldn't say reinvented, but I've pivoted. And now I hold this, you know, really awesome job. I have, you know, three or four podcasts and I'm the chief communications officer because I stayed curious and I stayed where I was like, okay, I want more. I want to, I want to give back. I want to do things. I'm not just going to sit and be like, okay, I guess there's nothing else for me. So when you're in this time, you have two kids, young kids, you're in a job that you're loving so much. Can you give a little advice to someone? If you can go back and remember, like, what were the things that saved you? You know, I, 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 I was willing to make sacrifices for sure. And I gave up some of my own interests, some of my own, um, you know, things that would, I would have liked to do. And I just put those on hold. So I don't think you can do, ev- do it all, Mm-mm. all at the same time. Exactly. So I really prioritized and I thought, okay, I'm going to keep my kids healthy, happy. I'm going to keep my job going, but I'm not going to have a dog, right? <laughs> no dog. No dog. You know, my yard, my house wasn't that beautiful. I couldn't be spectacular in every way, right? So I just picked the two main things. I was going to be good at home, good with my family, and good at work. But I wasn't going to make just be the perfect woman. Right. That's too much pressure. You're, you're not making so, the perfect cupcakes yeah. going to school no. and no, right? I making just the perfect let dinner. Let my hair be whatever, you know, nails, no clothes, not a thing. I just focused on the things that I needed that were important to me. And then as my kids got older and more independent, I could add in slowly, slowly a few of those things that matter more to me. Time with friends, um, you know, uh, just uh, things that that I wanted to do, uh, physical fitness or something. I couldn't do it all at once. So don't pressure yourself. It's too hard. And to lift up to other people's expectations is impossible. Just impossible. It's impossible. And yeah. and one of the things that you just said that I absolutely loved is, again, right, you can't do it all. And you, you, you can do it all, but not all at once. Right. And, and I think that's really important. But what I hear from you is that you were also living the best life in those two things. You were getting fulfillment from your job. You were getting fulfillment from your family. And so if someone's listening to this, like, okay, I'm trying that, but I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. There's something that needs to change, right? You probably don't have that passion, right? And I've worked with people in the past where it was like, okay, they had a job because of the money, but they didn't love it. And so they weren't feeling fulfilled. So the rest of their life kind of was like, uh, and I would say Mm -hmm. you need to find that passion, whether it's little, right? If it's like, I'm going to 
make sure I can garden every, you know, every, like every other day, like, because that gives you joy. You need to do that. You need to find those little things. And I don't know why I said gardening because I'm not, a, <laughs> I don't actually don't garden yeah. at all. Yeah. I don't find any okay. enjoyment. So yeah. it's kind of odd that I said that, but my husband does the gardening if, if, yeah. if that's something that brings him joy. But uh-huh. so it is kind of one of those things that you had passion and kind of purpose in both of those. So you were able to be like, okay, these are my two goals and I can just go, you know, a thousand miles ahead on both of them and feel good about everything else. So I think it's really important information and and kind of advice that you just gave because it is, you have to kind of gut check yourself and see where you are. Right. And I never lost sight of my ultimate goal, which was that 20 year old who thought, Oh, I want to be a scientist. I want to, I want to be the the supervisor. I want to be the leader of a, of a group of scientists. And I never, never lost sight of that. It never faded. Right. Um, and so I was in my postdoc and my kids are now, you know, one and three or two and four. And I'm talking to my boss and she says, Hey, I would love for you to stay in my lab forever because we work so well together. But she said, you're ambitious and, and I'm going to help you find a job where you, you know, to fulfill your ambition. And she did. She wrote me a glowing letter and helped me um, with my job search. And um, she really supported me to become a professor. And then again, so you had another person that saw you and wasn't selfish, was like, I want to help. Because you could have had someone that was like, I'm just going to keep her because I'm selfish and she's making my job easier. But she saw you for who you were and was like, I need to let this person soar. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. And she, I still admire her so much. We've of course stayed in touch, but she is just exactly that kind of person that she, she wants to lift people up and not hold them back. Um, But I'll tell you the year that I looked for, for, Faculty jobs was one of the hardest because I flew across the country 10 times. I had little kids at home. They had always had ear infections. I mean, it was winter. It was, it was tough, really tough, but I just was so determined. I like, this is my destiny. And um, my husband was on board. He was like, yeah, we're going to do this. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And so is that, and so yeah, take us down this next kind of next yeah. pivot so, in you, your life. Yeah. Well, I interviewed here at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse, New York, and it just really felt good. This is a place where people are not workaholics, right? We work hard, but it's not um, a pressure cooker, right? It's a pretty um, reasonable environment and it, it's affordable. It's not crowded. There's not a lot of traffic. It's friendly. So I like, I like this place and it has super schools, fantastic education. So, um, we all moved here in 1999 and it was the best thing for our family. Now, and, and yeah, so being a, you know, a, a true Californian and, and the weather there, we can all think about yeah, that. I know, and, it's then, great. <laughs> and then moving into upstate yeah. New York where yeah. you do not have that kind of weather. Was no. that a big adjustment for everyone? Or again, where you, you saw what, yeah. what you were doing there. So it kind of was like, this is part of it. Well, I definitely bought more wool sweaters and boots and mittens of all kinds. So we have all kinds of snow shovels now. Um, but I love the snow. I grew up skiing and I was, I love the outdoors. And, and so here we're very close to lakes and mountains and 
lovely, lovely country. Um, in fact, my family started out in upstate New York. After the Revolutionary War, they were given land here. And my great-great-grandfather came from here to move to San Diego in 1907. But I have relatives here still. Oh, that's, that's yeah. amazing. It, it just felt like home. It's like these are the family recipes. Everybody cooks this way around here. And it's like, oh, I think these are my people. So, right. yeah. yeah. So you found your people again. Yeah, I, mean, I did. Which is, which is beautiful. Yeah. And so, so now you have a one or these are now four and two. Two. Yeah. Cause they're four and two. So still very mm -hmm. young and still, yeah. you know, I always say to, to parents, that's the kind of when you're in the weeds. Right. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. But you're also on this journey to reach these amazing goals and have mm -hmm. this, you know, where now you can also make an, an even more impact. Mm -hmm. And so your husband's on board. So what, what did it look like for him? Cause I always kind of love to hear that. Yeah. He was working for a, a big company at the time in California called, um, uh, a, a chip company. I, I won't name it, but, um, they allowed him to work remotely in 1999 when nobody did that. So they set him up with a home office. He had, he did a lot of remote meetings and, um, he was, he did that for nine years. See, and, and that's one of the things they saw a good person. They didn't want to let him go and knew that, okay, this is the family's dream. Let's, let's figure this out. And that's what sometimes people don't do. They don't do the figuring out. They don't think past. Well, wait a second. I know it's not normal or not everyone has done it, you know, or it's protocol, but let's think outside the box and see what we can do. So I think that's amazing. So he was kind of on his changing routes a little bit because now he's working remote, had to kind of figure things out again, not in California where the weather is different. But when you were at, um, in college, kind of in the Northern part of California, did that remind you a little bit of upstate New York as well? Well, in fact, it, you know, Davis is flat, Central Valley, agricultural. It's more like Kansas than, than here. Um, but I was able to go from there up to the mountains a lot. So I did, still did a lot of skiing and mountain biking and, um, and that kind of thing in California. Yeah, my husband and I loved mountain biking um, and a lot of skiing. So uh, we love it here because so many things are close by. We can ski 20 minutes down the road and uh, it's even easier now than in California. Right, I'm sure. So, yeah, yeah. And, and then just as you said, the community, there's so much to offer in that area. And you're in the, you know, in the cold, but it's the snow. Mm -hmm. And so it's wonderful. Like where I am, yeah. it's cold and there's no snow. And sometimes yeah. it's like, Ugh, no. what's the point? We like snow. We want <laughs> I more love snow. snow. Yeah, I yeah. love snow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so the girls were little, little and, you know, they, they got started here in the schools and, oh my gosh, what great schools they are. Um, so in terms of, you know, for us, this is a, was a much better place and we all thrived here. Um, so it was not, um, not not a I don't miss some of those things about California you know it's expensive it's crowded and it's not always very friendly so that's not the case here which is beautiful so take us to like your first kind of two weeks month of teaching <laughs> how did that look oh yeah oh yeah no so you know they give you a little bit of time to get your feet on the ground here but I was very interested in teaching and um, I, I volunteered to teach. And so I teach in the medical school. I teach them all about viruses. And I also teach in the grad school where I teach more about, um, you know, how to approach scientific problems, how to study viruses and so on. I love it. In fact, um, I've just become a much more 
proficient teacher. Um, you know, in the beginning, you make mistakes like you want to cover everything and try to include too much and you go too fast and you just just it's just too much. Now I can just pull back a little bit and I know where to focus and I know how to get the students engaged. So um, it's one of the, my favorite parts of my job. I really love it. Yeah. And so I want to take this on a little pivot because one of the things that we really connected on that I absolutely loved is that when you moved, you, again, as you kind of painted the picture, you added a little things back into life that meant something to you. When you moved to upstate New York and you were like, okay, I can see I have, you know, my kids are now going to preschool and doing these other things that are in the school system. So you had a little bit extra time possibly. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit even busier then, but what did you do for yourself and where did that take you? I work with mainly men and I wanted to make some girlfriends, right? I needed to find some other women. So I tried a bunch of things. I tried the YMCA. I tried the aerobics classes. I tried all kinds of things. And at one of my fitness classes, a woman comes up to me and says, Hey, you look strong. I said, oh, thank you. Um, she said, would you like to try rowing? I said, okay. Uh, yeah, okay, that sounds good. So when the lakes melted <laughs> and we could row, I joined up with her and we tried learning. We learned to row on one of the local lakes. It changed my life. Um, and this woman is still one of my best friends, right? So I got what I needed, which is I met some friends. And these are women who like to be outside, who aren't obsessed about their look at that moment. You know, they're all beautiful, I think, but um, pretty real, pretty authentic people and willing to put up with some discomfort in order to make the boat move. And I just loved it. Um, I really um, thrive, I, you know, found the, the people that I appreciated my level of intensity. Not everybody can handle it, but they can. Um, and, you know, we have beautiful lakes here. So it was stunning. Eagles flying overhead. Oh, yeah. it's just beautiful. And, and so how many, how long into being in upstate New York did that kind of, did you find that? So that was in 2001. It only, I'd only been here a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, that's when I discovered rowing and I never looked back. It's been one of my major pastimes uh, ever since. Right. And I think it's not just a pastime. Can you take yeah. Yeah. So I'm obsessed. Yes. But you're also quite good at it and you have a group that's good at it and you guys have won some awards and, Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's more than just a hobby. Yes. Well, when my kids were little, I would row and, um, my husband would watch them and then we'd switch and I'd watch them and he'd get to go out and do what he likes, which is windsurfing and, and running and, and so on. So we shared our time and I became better and better at rowing. Um, and I didn't really get as intense about it until my daughter got older and she got, she's a very, very good rower. Um, and then I got more into it and just started, you know, thinking, gosh, I I am going to enter a bunch of races. So I started winning, you know, I have a bunch of medals now. And then recently I joined, um, sort of a, a team that's based all over the country. So it's people who are maybe reached sort of the top of their of their own home club, and now they want a little bit more. So with this virtual club, um, I've been going to international races. Yeah. So we went to the World Masters Championship in uh, France, 
and we I won a gold medal. So I'm a world champion. I mean, who would have thought, right, that in your 50s you can you can get to that level in any sport? It was just blew my mind. Oh, and recently I went to Boston and rode in a very big race in the United States called the Head of the Charles Regatta. And wouldn't you know, four of us, really small, little lightweight women, we got a silver medal at the head of the Charles. It was, I'd never done so well. Um, so, you know, it's motivating, right? Now I, I train a lot and do it for my team. Um, when we meet up, everybody's been doing their work and we get together and we go really fast. Well, and, and one of the yeah. things that, no, that's incredible. And one of the things that I, I think is so important and then I love just meeting people that when you say, or you have a goal and you say you're going to do it, you fulfill it. Right. And so you're, you're finding that on so many different levels. I mean, you found it professionally, but then it was like, okay, I want to do something a little bit more. I want to meet people. I want to be outside. And it was like, again, your curiosity allowed you. Cause someone might say, you know, someone could, your friend could have came up to you and you've been like, I've never done that. I'm not doing that. Right. And you let fear stop you and not take you to the next thing. And now you're a gold and silver medalist at like two incredible things. Not only that, but you're also a world renowned virologist doing some crazy, amazing things where you're, you know, saving people, you're helping people, you're helping people not suffer. And so, um, I, when we spoke was fascinated with that. I just said, you know, there's, there's levels of people. And I think we all think there's some of us that high achieve for everything. There's some that high achieve for everything and maybe they go a little bit below, right? There's the A, B, C kind of D. There's people that don't really achieve anything because they, they let that fear kind of do. Maybe they have it inside, but they don't let them do it. And so it always fascinates me kind of what people's makeups are and what they're, you know, what kind of red line connected all those dots. And, and you, someone could say, oh, well, you were in the right place at the right time, right? You, you worked, but you worked hard, hard hard at everything you did and you didn't let life events or life things or you know when as you said stanford you felt intimidated you could have been like I i'm gonna leave right i'm I'm not winning but now you're winning gold medals <laughs> so you could, you could go right back but so those are all the things that people think about right and we don't we don't allow ourselves to be like i can and i'm going to i think it it requires a willingness to put in the time because this success did not happen overnight. But I think I'm willing to um, take feedback and use the information I'm getting to adjust and to learn and to, to try to incrementally improve. I've been rowing for 20 years now. And so it took a long time to get to this point. I didn't have time before. I didn't have the money to put into the sport. And as with age, things can shift. And so I would say, don't give up early just because you're not successful right away. Um, sometimes things take a lot longer. Learning a language, playing in a musical instrument, or becoming a good cook, or learning how to knit a sweater. I don't know. Things take time. Um, and it's worth failing or, you know, not winning a few times. Um, yeah. And I just, um, I don't try to be amazing at everything, right? I focus my energy. I, I'm not a very good runner. My husband will tell me I'm not a good runner, but I somehow rowing, I am. I am pretty good. And I don't, I think it's, I don't stop when it hurts, right? Yeah, I'll keep going. 
I can just say, okay, that's just, you know, my body's saying, ouch, but I don't have to stop when it starts to hurt. So that's what I see in people who persist is the discomfort doesn't scare them off. What does it feel like when you're in the boat on the water? And you, and you can just let your mind <laughs> yeah. kind of go. What are the thoughts that are there? Uh, so when you row, you, you you don't get to see everything, right? You're facing backwards. So you listen, you feel, you can feel and sense things. You can hear the sounds of the other rowers and the sounds of the oars in the water. And when everybody does it together, the boat just picks up and glides. It's like it finally found the harmony. Um it's really amazing feeling. We don't get it every time, um, but it's worth everybody focusing. And it, it drives away other thoughts. So when I'm in the boat, it gives me mental clarity because I only have this one thing to do, which is to focus on my body and space and the rhythm and the, and the effort. It's just, it just clears my head completely. So, um, it's a sport where you can get kind of okay at it in a year or two, but a lifetime it takes to master. You know, things like golf or tennis or like that, downhill skiing. It just takes a long time to feel like you're at the expert level. I love that. And I could I could see you out there and I can feel it. And one of the things I think is beautiful is that your girls got to see you right? They got to see you in the lab. They got to see you kind of following a passion there. And then they got to see you later in life be like, I'm going to kind of explore here. So you gave them the ability to be curious and the ability to try things and go out and kind of go for it. So I know you said both of your girls did row and do row. And then your one daughter is, is, can you take us through that a little bit? Just because yeah. this was <laughs> oh, again, yeah. super fascinating. Right. It, 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 you know, you never know what children you'll be given, right? So you, you take the, the ones you have and we're so grateful so my um, older daughter, um, spectacular kid, right? And, and then her younger sister was just so much bigger. So my youngest was so tall, literally six feet tall by the time she was 13 years old. Yeah. What do you do with a kid? And you're like, hey, you know, and I'm, t I'm looking up at her. right? So she was very tall for spectacularly. And she tried a lot of sports. So she was trying out basketball and so on. And I said, Hey, let's try rowing. And so we got her rowing and she was the fastest kid in the county, right? Instantly. She just had leverage. Um, she got onto the high school rowing team and I also got her um, introduced to the, U the United States rowing team. So by the time she was 15, she was on the United States junior rowing team. Like, wow, she was that fast. She was winning uh, races on the rowing machine and breaking American records. And I had no idea, right? I, I, I didn't know how to support a kid with that level of talent. So I did my best. I asked a lot of coaches what to do. I, I tried to figure this out and we got her situated. Um, junior world champion, you know, then, um, all this colleges, right, are interested in her. So I had to take her everywhere around the country. I had coaches calling me. 
it was difficult that year of her looking at colleges. So she eventually settled on Cal, just Cal Berkeley, and was a D1 athlete for four years. And she then in the summers, rode for the United States. And, and so I always think, and I don't know if you think this way, but I don't, so you tell me if the science brain goes this way, or is this just, is, is it the way my, you know, kind of communication brains go? But I do believe that you were meant to row for a reason, because it wasn't just fill, fulfilling something for you, but it was also going to be her path. And maybe if you never did it, it would never have been introduced to her. If you guys never moved to upstate New York, that this, this dot wouldn't have gotten connected. And so I think that's what is so beautiful. It gave, you know, her this confidence in a different way where it gave you this fulfillment at an age that you were like, okay, I just want to meet people. And now, oh my gosh, look what I can do. And I, you know, I'm going to be 50 this year. And it's funny at the gym today, I just did like a crazy amount of uh, pull-ups and I didn't think I, and I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, look at me 50. Like, you know, this, I'm getting stronger and better with age. And I love that. And I think it's such an important message for women, especially nowadays where it's like, okay, you know, age is such a number and it's, it's not, it's a mindset. It's like you take care of yourself and you're just going to get better and better. So I absolutely love, you know, everything that you're, you're bringing and everything to this, the story. And I think it's fascinating. So I also want to ask you now, when you're in the lab, what is, where's your mind? Where does that go? Like, what is the feeling when you first walk in there and you know, you have some really important work? You know, I am still in the lab right? Some professors have people who take care of everything. I still do some of our experiments, the ones that might still need me, right? It is um, so absorbing. You know, I put, uh, the work is really important that we're doing. So we're testing antiviral drugs for companies and um, scientists who create things, you know, invent things, but then they need scientists to make to find out if they're going to be useful. So I feel like I play a key role and I, I come into the lab and I'm like, OK, I need to do my best work, the absolute best work. There's no room for being distracted. There's no room for being wasteful or sloppy. You have to bring your best work. And so that requires preparation, planning, uh, double checks. You know, you work together as a team. You want lots of eyes on the work so that it's even better. Um, we really just have high standards, you know. So that's something in my life that applies really everywhere. I do have high standards. I don't do sloppy, right? Um, so that's what I, I bring to my, the things I care about. Um, it's really that attention and the, and the, just the desire to do the best work I can. And again, cause you're doing really important stuff. I mean, and I'm going to bring it back to the work that you were doing for, you know, Fettech and with, with shingles. And that's when we first, again, got to meet you. And some of the findings that came out of that, if we didn't have you, yeah. Where would it well, I'm the only lab in the world that can test uh, these compounds, these drugs for uh, effectiveness for shingles. The only one in the world. Can you take us through and that a little a bit? Yes, burden. please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, back when I was at Stanford in my postdoc, uh, one of my first projects was to develop a system to study this virus. And the virus causes chickenpox. We all know that causes shingles, but it only grows in humans. And therefore, we couldn't use a lot of other mice or something. We couldn't do a lot of things because it's just a human virus. So my job was to develop a, a small model to study it 
in mice that have a little bit of human skin engrafted in the mouse. And in fact, it worked beautifully, even way back in the 90s. So that was my invention, my discovery, and I am still using it. I'm still the world expert in um, using these systems to study treatments for shingles. Uh, there's no other place right. you can do it. No, and again, and, and it's, 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 it's so amazing. Finish, because I want you to finish. Then. Yeah, well, um, luckily in our country, NIH uh, supports so much research, and they have a, a division that is there to help small groups like chemists and companies bring their products forward. So these are treatments for all kinds of viral diseases, not just mine. But I'm in, I'm in a group called the Collaborative Antiviral Testing Group. And it's nationwide. It's a you know handful of us. And we are now contractors of the um, NIH. And we are part of a system where a chemist says, I think this is good stuff. And it gets tested in cells. And then it gets maybe a hit. And that's what happened with FedTech. There was a hit, right? It's like, wow, this looks really good. And then they contact the next level. And I'm that next level. So I can then take compounds that show promise and test them in a human skin system. This is normal human skin, and we get it from cosmetic surgery, and we get it from our surgeons here at the hospital, and we can study the virus in, in the place it wants to be. It wants to be in a piece of skin, and it's like, okay, let's go. It tries to grow, boom, we hit it with, a, with an antiviral drug or a treatment or substance and see, okay, what does that do? Is it any good? And you you don't want to do that on people. Um, right. So um, I've developed, oh, so many, you know, aspects of this system. It's really complex. Uh, it isn't just something I can write it out like a recipe and hand it over. It requires judgment and uh, assessment and experience to get it right. And so that's what I mean by like, okay, we're going to do this correctly and right every time because it's super hard. Right. And, and the work that you're doing is, is really, really important work for, for mankind. No, I mean, it, it definitely is, but this is what I want, you know, people to take out of this is that you're doing this, you know, high level work. Yes. You're a high achiever, you know, but you're also a very, very hard worker. And those things kind of come together. You, you know, you high achiever, hard worker, you're going to get something pretty fantastic, but there's, many different sides of you, right? You're a mother, you're a wife, you're a professor, you're a scientist, you're a world-class class rower, you're a world-class virologist. And sometimes we need to kind of think about ourselves in that and give ourselves some credit where maybe we, we don't think we deserve it. And I think when you can kind of give yourself a little pat on the back and say, you know, yes, I'm doing really important things. And I know it's, it's uncomfortable because it's uncomfortable for you to, to sit and say these things. But this is what I want the audience to listen to. Like what you're doing at, at the levels that you're doing are just, you know, thank you. Because we need people like you. We need people out there. But we also need that that drive and that fire. And I wanted to bring the, uh, the other side of the story because we, we could talk about the science side now that I'm, you know, I, I kind of understand a little bit of it. And I'm interested in it. But what I wanted to bring the audience is also the realness, the real human behind it. Yeah. You know, science is done by real people. And we are human. We have our weaknesses and our failures. But we also have incredible drive and persistence and 
and an eagerness to to contribute. And so I actually feel so much gratitude and privilege that I get to do this job at the, really the public has supported me. I work on public funds to do this work. And it is my, um, it's really an honor to get to do that. I have the trust of um, people, the, the system, the, the big, the big people uh, to do this work. And um, it is so very motivating. It also makes you not want to, um, you know, live in the past because things are exciting now. I mean, life gets better. There's a lot to look forward to. And I, my real passion really still is I want to help be, I want to contribute to a project that leads to people getting treatment. You know, I really do. I, that would be something I could, I could really, um, you know, that would be a goal. So now yeah. we just show up every day. We just keep showing up and seeing if we can make a difference that day. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is important. You show up mm-hmm. and see if you can make a difference that day. You have mm-hmm. big goals, you have big aspirations, but you show up and make a difference that day. And that's what it takes little mm-hmm. steps to make big change. And yeah. so, you know, thank you, Dr. Moffat, so much for joining mm-hmm. Masterminds in Medicine. Oh, well, it's really been my pleasure. I hope your message reaches lots of people. I think it will. And thank you again. Your story is unbelievable. You guys know what to do. Rate, review, share. You don't know who is listening to this that needs to hear it. You're you're listening to this. You're like, oh, that's interesting. But you don't know who out there right now is like, wait a second. A light bulb goes off and it maybe changes the trajectory of their life. So please rate, review and share. And we'll see you for another episode of Masterminds in Medicine brought to you by Your Next Stuff. 